turn to Genesis chapter 3. Today we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 24. Last time we saw God's word to the serpent as God now addresses his creatures after the uh, sin and rebellion of our first parents. And in his words, the serpent, he uh, gave hope of uh, victory and triumph and redemption. Uh, Let's go on then to read verses 16 through 24 as we read the, the rest of this chapter. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for instructing and teaching us, for giving us your word in scripture, preserving it for us and bringing it to us this day. We pray that you would guide the preaching and the reception of this word so that we might uh, be convicted and that uh, edified and built up uh, accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage of scripture, uh, we find that sorrow and suffering and death were not part of God's original creation. They're not natural. Now, evolution might describe these things as the way the world works. Evolution may describe suffering and sorrow and death as kind of the means uh, the world progresses, as original and natural in its own myth of origins. Uh, But that is not the biblical account of the world. The Bible teaches that when God created all things, they were very good. But suffering and death came as a judgment upon sin. And that is why the world is the way it is today. In this passage, we find that God speaks to the woman in verse 16. He speaks to the man in verses 17 through 19. 
He, then Adam speaks. He names the woman Eve in verse 20. Then the Lord God makes garments for them, verse 21. And then in verses 22 through 24, the Lord God exiles the man and the woman from uh, the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life. And in this passage, we find that sin is punished with pain, with death, and with exile, but that in judgment, God remembers mercy. So let's look at those three things, pain and death and exile, and how each one is is for sin and how yet in judgment God remembers mercy. First then, look at pain. Verses 16 through 18, um, in God's word to the woman and to the man, he speaks of pain, that their work would be made painful in this life. And he speaks uh, of this pain, um, maybe not comprehensively, but uh, particularly with regard to uh, the, the woman and the man's uh, particular callings. There is a connection between their names and uh, what God tells them. Uh, God addresses the woman's relation to childbirth and her husband. She was taken out of man, and it's uh, with respect to her uh, to to the man as well as she'll be named Eve, and it's with respect to her bearing of children um, that she is addressed. And then Adam, who is taken from the ground, which is Adama. Uh, that Adam is named after, and therefore the ground itself is cursed uh, because of him and will prove difficult for him to work. And so to both the woman and to the man, God speaks of pain. First, uh, the, the, the woman, she shall experience pain in childbirth. Yet, she shall give birth and remain with and under her husband. There is both uh, pain here, but also mercy. So literally, in the beginning here, or woodenly, we might say, it, where it says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, it's uh, that uh, I will surely multiply your pain and conception. Um, as the commentaries all note, this is a figure of speech uh, for the pains which women endure in consequence of conception. Um, and then the second line mentions the most prominent and intense of those pains that result from conception, that is, of childbirth. Without sin, childbirth would still have been work, but basically painless work. But now in response to sin, God adds great pain to the process and makes the work difficult. The woman had been told to be fruitful and multiply, and that remains a blessing throughout Scripture uh, for there to be conception, for there to be uh, the birth of children. Childbirth would still remain a normal calling, but now it would be subject to great pain. It would also be subject to peril, although childbirth is much safer now than it's been in the past. But even though there may be ways of managing some of that pain, and it might be different from person to person, and time to time, yet pain is unavoidable. Uh, seen a number of times. There's the contractions, there's the delivery, there's the pains afterwards. And then it's not as if the rest of motherhood is painless. Uh, there is continued to have work that is 
hard work that will yet need to be done than taking care of the child. And so this pain childbirth is, is a punishment. It exists in response to sin and rebellion. It's not natural. It exists in a fallen world as something that God added. He multiplied it. These pains testify to human sin and to the need for salvation. It should be a reminder to, uh, to, to people that we do not live in the world the way it is intended. And that should cause the question, why is the world not the way it ought to be? And that is because of our rebellion. But as I have said, in judgment, God remembers mercy. To the one with faith, all things, even uh, this painful work, work together for good. For the believer, this pain is a trial and discipline, not wrath, that being removed. And as Eve would believe God's promises, she would perceive his mercy and blessing amid this trial. As Martin Luther said, this very punishment is a joyful one if you look at the hope of eternal life which springs from her seed and out of the midst of her childbearing pains. And if you consider also the glory of maternity or motherhood left to her. She did not lose her job. In fact, it became all the more important as the means by which a redeemer would come to save mankind. She had both the hope of redemption and the honor of motherhood left to her. All of us, all of us have been born of woman. All of us have reason to be thankful for their labor and their pains and their care. Women are uniquely fitted for this vital and essential work from the pregnancy and the childbirth and the nurture of children. It is a glory and honor uh, belonging to them and to be honored by all who are grateful for life. Likewise for women themselves, you know, most of them amid the pains and sorrows have the satisfaction then and joy of beholding their children. And they have this consolation as well, that the work of motherhood is a calling from God, a work that God is well pleased with, especially and particularly when done in faith in Christ. God gave her this calling and did not take it back. So John Calvin says, Whatever hypocrites or wise men of the world may think of it, when a woman, considering to what she has been called, submits to the condition which God has assigned her, and does not refuse to endure the pains or rather the fearful anguish of childbirth or anxiety about her offspring or anything else that belongs to her duty, God values this obedience more highly than if, in some other manner, she made a great display of heroic virtues while she refused to obey the calling of God. So there is both a a correction, a a curse, there is also a hope and an honor, a a mercy that is left, especially to those who hold fast to that promise of salvation given. The second part of the words of God to the woman uh, address her relation to her husband, and there's been much written and debated about these words. I find it interesting that when King's College uh, Choir in Cambridge, England, uh, have their Christmas service, and they read their texts, and and one of them is Genesis 3, uh, that they leave out these two lines, uh, being a little uncomfortable with them, perhaps. But uh, the question, the debate, is usually how they are uh, to be understood. 
And even if you compare different versions of the ESV, you'll find different translations. Uh, woodenly, it would be uh, something like, your desire shall be unto your husband, or to your husband. Um, I think one of two ways of understanding that is probably correct. Uh, the first one, uh, which is probably the more traditional one, is that your desire shall be subject to your husband, and that you wouldn't be able to do whatever you want, but that your desire would be subject to the authority of your husband. That is what the next part of the line says, he shall rule over you. Um, the second one, which I, I kind of lean towards, is the earlier translation of the ESV, uh, your desire shall be for your husband, uh, that despite the pain of childbirth, you will still desire your husband and come to him, and he, then the second part, and he shall rule over you. Um, it's still speaking of um, submission to her husband, but uh, almost more as a consolation as much as a correction, but that it shall endure. Uh, the, the 2016 ESV then follows an interpretation first suggested in 1975, which I find less convincing, uh, but that is that your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Um, that you will want to control and have your way with your husband, but he will have to rule over you. And the idea there would be that there's going to be conflict uh, in, in the future, uh, one against another. Uh, whether the first or second meaning, though, I think the text describes a reaffirmation of the creation order in the context of the fall, that she shall still be united to her husband and subordinate to him. Or as Calvin says, thus the woman who had perversely exceeded her proper bounds is forced back into her own position. Uh, this is, first of all, a correction, a correction of uh, her waywardness. We might even call it a punishment, since it would not be as pleasant as formerly, would not be as natural. Both would be sinners. Now, Calvin says the subjection was now less voluntary and less agreeable than it formerly would have been. Now, this does not justify a harsh rule on the part of the husband. It's not telling how the husband ought to rule. We find that in something like Ephesians 5. And, of course, Scripture says, do not be harsh with your wife. Um, but exercise that headship in love. But it would still not be natural. It would uh, not be as agreeable as formerly. But also, I think it is a mercy and a consolation. They are not separated from each other. They are not broken apart. The original design that they were created for will still be fulfilled to some degree in this life. The marriage ordinance is still in force. It was not abrogated. The wife still fulfills her role as a helper for him, and he as a head for her. And so God speaks to the woman. The God also speaks to the man and speaks of pain in his work. Yet, he also speaks of how he will still eat. First of all, though, he, before he gets to the pain, he uh, convicts the man. Uh, the man had passed off responsibility. He had been the first one summoned before God's judgment to and had said, oh, the woman that you gave me, she gave it to me, and I did eat. But he says here, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Adam could not escape his sin, neither will you escape your sin. Uh, if it be not remitted, if, it, if it's not forgiven in Christ, 
uh, it will still convict you. Uh, his excuse fell flat. He said, oh, the woman gave it to me. Well, you shouldn't have listened to the voice of, of your wife because she was telling you something that was against my words that I told you, which were quite plain. Oh, if someone tells you to disobey God, you should not do that. And the fact that they told you to do it doesn't absolve you of your guilt. There's no hiding sin before God. He will bring it into its proper life as much as we try to put it in the most um, uh, appealing uh, setting. But then God goes on to describe his pain. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Adam had been tasked to work and to keep the garden. He was taken from the ground uh, to work the ground, being named after the ground. We've said that like a, a bunch of times now. You get the connection there. Adam and the ground. Now the ground would be cursed because of him. Formerly, as with the woman, Adam would have had to work. But the work would have been basically painless work. It would have been pleasant work. The ground would have easily responded to his efforts and provided food in abundance. But now that ground would produce thorns and thistles, which are both very uncomfortable, painful, and also unprofitable. Uh, that you know, They don't bear fruit in the way that a, an apple tree might, or the, the grain like the wheat would. He would have to contend with these things, the ground would no longer easily bring forth food. Sometimes it fails to bring forth food. If you plant seeds, you realize they don't always give you food in the end. It takes work to make it do so. There are storms that can decimate your crops. There are droughts that can do the same thing. There are insects that seek to eat them, uh, and there is fungus that seeks to destroy them, and a host of mighty forces at war with your food supply. Uh, that make it difficult for you to bring forth it out of the ground, uh, seeking to prevent man from bringing forth food from the earth. <clears throat> Romans 8 speaks of this curse, which I read earlier, how the creation is subjected to futility and put in bondage to corruption. Uh, the creation itself is groaning together in the pains of childbirth. God changed the way creation works. After man's fall, there were things introduced into the order of creation that uh, did not operate that way uh, at the beginning. We can't take for granted that everything you see today is the way it was originally. Uh, God created everything out of nothing, and he can certainly uh, change what already exists to now uh, demonstrate his judgment against sin. All creation now speaks not only to the goodness of God and the glory of God, but all creation also speaks of the sinfulness of man and the judgment of God. That's part of natural revelation as well, is the fact that we have fallen short, that we have rebelled against our Maker, and there is now uh, His wrath upon mankind that is coming. Heaven and earth testify against man, reminding him of his rebellion against the Creator. Now, this pain does not only impact agriculture. Uh, that is used here as a, as a fundamental work and the one mentioned in context. Uh, but all the work that man does under the sun is prone to difficulty, challenges, loss, setbacks, pain. And the accomplishes that he, accomplishments that he makes can be quite fragile. Uh, that they are built up for a time but can easily fall back down. 
There is sweat, lots of sweat. Uh, By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread. This pain and this vexation comes from the Lord God. He doesn't simply predict it. He is imposing it on account of man's sin. It is a reminder to turn from the wrath to come, to turn from the sin that brought this upon us. Now, the fact that God imposed it does not mean you should not try to mitigate it. I mean, Adam is going to have to contend with these things. He is going to have to pull bread out of the ground. Um, But it should be a reminder, to some degree it's uh, unavoidable, a reminder to repent. But yet there is consolation. In pain, you shall eat of it. You shall eat the plants of the field. When man sinned, he forfeited all of God's gifts. He did not deserve them. Now he demerited them. Now, yet the earth does continue to produce food. In his long-suffering mercy and his common grace to all mankind, God continues for a time to send rain and sun upon the evil and the good, even upon his enemies. God must labor, sorry, man must labor hard for it. Uh, but the ground still usually produces food. Uh, likewise, our labors uh, do often produce some accomplishment, and we construct houses, and we have clothing, and we have food. And this testifies to God's goodness and mercy. As Paul said to the pagans in Acts 14, Yet God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This merciful provision of food uh, amid the curse is a call to return to your Creator and to respond to His offer of salvation, which is given you now in the Gospel. And furthermore, to the one redeemed by God, this pain is no longer a manifestation of His wrath upon you, but of His fatherly discipline and training, pain that works to your good. And so for both women and men, for all mankind, from the young to the old, Embrace your God-given callings. Continue to work. Be grateful for his mercy. Endure pain and difficulty. Receiving his chastisement and turning from sin unto the hope of the gospel. Uh, This is our life now under the sun in the present age. There is pain. But God continues to go on. It speaks not only of pain, but also of death that this pain shall be with you until you die. And there is now death. Look in verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Man returns to the ground from which he was taken. He dies. From man came death on account of sin. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul says in Romans, or in 1 Corinthians, by man came death, and Adam all die. Or Romans again, the wages of sin is death. Death was the penalty for eating the forbidden fruit. You shall surely die. It was the the sanction, the the curse of the covenant of works. On that day they ate of it. They spiritually died. They lost communion with God. They began to die, and they would inevitably 
die. And without God's promise of redemption, there would be no hope after death either. For the unredeemed, death continues in hell. This man is cut off from God, who is life itself. Now, death, physical death, is unnatural. It's a curse. Man was not made to die. Man was not made to decompose. His soul was not made to be separate from his body. Man was made to live forever. And we still probably feel that. That's why death feels uh, sorrowful, while death seems violent to us. This definitive separation we experience at the death of loved ones was not part of our original design uh, or of God's original design for us. Yet death comes to all. It comes to each one of you, or it will come to each one of you. And you don't know when it will come for you. It cannot be avoided. It cannot be escaped. We shall all die. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. As Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, So attend funerals, visit graveyards, see the end of all mankind, and lay it to heart. As Psalm 90 reminds us, as I read earlier, God tells man, return, children of man. He turns us back to the dust. The days that we have are full of toil and vexation, and then they are 70 years, or maybe even by reason of strength, 80, but we soon die and fly away. Uh, We should number our days and get a heart of wisdom and call out to God that he might satisfy us with his steadfast love, to turn to him for hope, for uh, gladness, for joy, for uh, blessing upon the work of our hands. For that is the situation in which we live, a mortal condition, and God is the one who is high and eternal and everlasting. So as Ecclesiastes 12 would say, let me just read that in chapter 12. Remember the Creator in the days of your youth. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, All is vanity. What he means by vanity is fleeting. It's like a vapor. It is here for a little while, and then it is gone. And so remember your Creator while you have the time. That's the idea in the days of your youth. 
And so like the pains of this life, so also death is a punishment of sin. And its reality, its future reality, is a call to repentance. Turn again to your Creator. Receive His offer of grace. Turn before it is too late. Even the redeemed die. Even those who are saved will die. Death will be the last enemy for Christ to destroy. He will destroy it at His return but it is still present in this age. Even in the case of the saints, death is a bad thing in itself, an enemy, after all, as Scripture describes it, something to be mourned. Yet, even this evil, that of death, God turns to the good of those who believe in Jesus Christ. For by death, the souls of believers are freed from sin and misery. By death, Believers are made perfect in holiness and go to be with Christ in glory. And that is a great thing. That is the best thing. There they await the final victory, that of the resurrection. And Jesus, who has rose again and obtained the keys of death and Hades, shall come on the last day to wake the dead and raise them up. And those who are raised to glory by his grace shall be raised incorruptible. You know, this corruptible body will put on incorruption. Your mortal body will put on, will be given immortality. That is the hope we have in Jesus Christ, the conqueror of the serpent of death. We also find in this passage, in this section, turning back to Genesis, um, two hopeful responses to this pronouncement uh, upon the man and the woman. And both of them also are related to death in some way. Uh, the first one is the fact that, the, that Adam names his wife. And what do you think he's going to name his wife? After they heard all of what has been said here, he names her Eve. He names her Eve. Why does he name her Eve? Because she was the mother of all living. Adam called the woman Eve, uh, and that means life or life giver. Uh, same as the word Zoe, which is Greek for life. So uh, Eve is Hebrew for, for life. Uh, just after God has spoken of death, Adam speaks of life. He calls his wife the mother of all living. Now, why would he do so? Why would he do so at this point? What did God say that would lead him to do this? Well, God's words in verses 15 and 16 had given Adam hope, and he expresses faith in God's word. Otherwise, there'd be little to motivate him to do this. He calls the woman Eve because God had said that she would still give birth, that her offspring would be separated by God from the serpent, and that through her offspring, the serpent would be defeated. So despite the judgment of death due to them for sin, yet God held out hope for new life, and Adam at least seems to have latched onto it. Though the wages of sin is death, yet the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this is a, a glory to the woman, as I have said, daughters of Eve, uh, that she conceives and bears and gives birth to and nurtures little humans, little living beings. Man cannot compare to the woman in how she is an incubator for new life before and after birth, sharing of her own self for the sake of the little helpless ones that come from her. The other hopeful response to these words is something that God does. 
God made garments of skins and clothed the man and the woman. They had tried covering themselves with fig leaves, uh, but rather unsuccessfully. And instead, he made them garments of skin, which both were more substantial of uh, garments in, in covering them, contrasting to the loincloths that, that they had made, and also of different material of skins rather than the fig leaves. I think we learn at least two things from this. We learn that he cared for them. He covered their nakedness. Not only does he provide food, but he also provides clothing. And Jesus told us this as well, especially regarding his children. We find here that not only were clothes invented for usefulness, but also for honor and dignity. Clothes are useful because they keep you from getting scratched by the thistles, and they also are useful in covering your nakedness. So you don't have to be embarrassed that you can walk with honor and dignity, even in a fallen world. Uh, where they hid uh, because they were naked. They sensed that. And public nakedness is, is shameful in this age. And so we wear clothes for the purpose of modesty and respectability. That's how it's supposed to work, at least, uh, in this age. The other lesson, not only did he cover them and clothe them and care for them that way, but the other lesson is that in this act is hidden in the fact that these skins came from animals. Well, that's, that's where skins come, from, from living beings. God gave them a covering through the death of an animal. Thus God taught them to look to him to provide this covering, to take away their sins and their defilement. He would provide this for them, and he would do so through the shedding of blood. And we'll find this also brought up in the next chapter, where Cain and Abel are offering unto the Lord, and at least Abel offering animals unto the Lord, that there were sacrifices already being uh, practiced. And so we find another allusion to God's provision uh, for fallen man. So there is pain, there is death, and yet hope in the midst of both of those curses. And then finally, exile. Look at verse 22 through 24. There um, the Lord God Uh, drives out the man from Eden, and he bars the way to the tree of life. He he gets him out of the garden and away from the tree. It would be no longer fitting for him to eat of the tree of life. He had forfeited that. Uh, He did not deserve that eternal life. Uh, He would rather be exiled from this holy place of God's presence and uh, he would be sent out. Uh, he, uh, the entrance to Eden apparently is on the east of the... Uh, and interesting, I've been told that's the way the temple and tabernacle were set up as well. And we'll find another allusion to that comparison here as well, because how is the way barred? By the cherubim. Now, cherubim is plural. If it was one, it would be cherub. Uh, cherubim, that I am, is the Hebrew plural, and so there's at least two of them. We don't know how many cherubim, but that was an angel, particularly a guardian angel, um, guarding the garden, uh, sentries who would watch the way there, and a flaming sword that whirled or that turned that uh, would not allow anyone to come to the tree of life. And so fallen man is disinherited, he is exiled, 
he is estranged from God and conscious of this loss. And if you, I, I think the sense of nostalgia of literally longing for home, of one, go, some, going back to some golden age in the past, uh, finds its root in the fact that we know that things are not the way they ought to be, that they weren't once at some point were better, and we have lost. We have been driven from our original inheritance. Man has been barred also from the tree of life, that sacrament to the original covenant. He has been, uh, uh, he has been excommunicated uh, from life. It symbolized eternal life with God. And so God made it clear to man that his sin had changed the situation. Sin had come between God and man. Paradise was holy ground, but man was no longer holy. Now, as they received the promise, as they placed their faith in the coming Messiah, they would have uh, salvation and a a restored fellowship with God. Uh, But they would also be taught that re-entry into the holy places requires a Redeemer. God's people would learn to place their faith in Him and to have renewed fellowship with God accordingly. Even under the Mosaic Covenant, you know, later on in history uh, in, of God's people, the Holy of Holies was normally off limits to all, uh, all of Israel. You know, even the holy place was off limits to most of the Israelites. And then the Holy of Holies, no one could enter except for one exception. Uh, but on the curtain in the tabernacle that separated that holy place from the most holy place, what was on the curtain uh, in the tabernacle and actually adorning much of the tabernacle? There was cherubim, and a cherubim guarding the way to the holy place of God, much like the Garden of Eden. The only exception for entrance was the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he had to come with the blood of the sacrifice, both for him and for the people, teaching the people that uh, entrance into the holy places and restored fellowship with God would come through the death, uh, through an atonement, but not that of the animals, for they had to do it every year, and it kept being repeated. It did not accomplish it, but it taught them. But Christ now has ascended into the heavenly paradise on the basis of his sacrificial death. So as the book of Hebrews argues, you may now enter into the holy places through him. Draw near to God through Jesus Christ. And in Christ you have the hope of your eternal inheritance and paradise in the age to come. And so man was was exiled, but there is also a hope of return which is offered to us in the gospel through Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, sin is punished with pain, with with death, with exile. Uh, But in judgment, God remembers mercy. He shows uh, common grace to all mankind, uh, showing uh, mercy in in this life. Uh, But he also offers his promise of salvation, which we can take hold of and therefore find that all of these hardships work to our good, Uh, unto the good of those who are called by him. So the Lord sustains you for a time in this life. He reaffirms your earthly calling, and he calls you out uh, to, to repent from sin. He offers the gift of life in Christ, so that you who by nature are miserable and mortal and lost, yet by grace may be saved. And so those who embrace the promise can work in this life unto the Lord with hope, knowing that these difficulties are 
discipline and training of your heavenly Father who seeks your good. And so to him be glory for now and unto the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that though we deserved your wrath unmitigated, uh, that we had rebelled and lifted up our hands against you and have continued to do so until your mercy found us. And you have therefore acted in grace and salvation to bring us out of sin and misery unto salvation by a Redeemer. We pray that you would be with us in this life amidst its challenges and trials, that you would use them to our good, that you would help us to use them rightly uh, unto our good. We pray that you would bring the lost to salvation, that they might return through the Lord Jesus Christ to their Maker. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.